0: Well, has anybody here ever been confused when they're trying to read the Bible? Okay, like three of you are honest, the rest of you are either lying or you've never read the Bible. That's my proposition. Because it can be confusing, right? Like, this story in particular is an incredible story. Like it's and it is a story. It is a narrative story. It is one that happened in real time and in a moment in history. It's not just made up. But and it's a great story. Like you should you should give yourself if you haven't done yet in this series, you should give yourself a moment, or afternoon, some time to just read the story because it's a really interesting and well done uh, dramatic. It's told really well, and there's just all the pieces of story and movie and things that we enjoy. And it's there. Um, but, and so it's it, if you're just reading it as a story, somebody gives you, hey, this short story, read this about, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, this is interesting. There's some twists and turns. Even today, there's some really interesting flips of, of the script and, and and really some comedy in that. Um, and, and so if you have the opportunity to just read it from that unbiased perspective, you'll, you'll probably enjoy it. But when you're trying to read it as, like, this is God's word, and I'm trying to, like, engage with God and get something out of it, and I don't, it can be confusing, right? Um, and a lot of times that, that stems from, there's different types of literature in the Bible, and we don't always, if we can't approach all of them the same way, or we will indeed be confused. So real quick, uh, on your app, um, on the This Weekend tab, there is a video that is uh, linked on there, uh, one of the How to Read the Bible series from the Bible Project, and it talks about plot in biblical narrative, and I would encourage you to read it. I think it's really helpful with stories like this to know kind of how to approach it, because sometimes we're wondering, like, well, do I try to be brave like Esther, or obviously I don't want to be like Haman, and it's just helpful. So but what, what's going on in the grand story of the Bible and what helps us to understand is that there are, uh, there are parts of it that are narrative. There are parts of it that are just uh, really wisdom literature and instructions. There's part of it that are poetry that just help express the, the emotions that we go through as we live this life. And, and then there are parts of it talking about what God has done and what he will do. And so putting all that together can be challenging at times. But really what we have from the beginning, we have the story of God creating the world, right? Like that this is his deal uh, this is his world. We are his people. Um, and he put before us, as his people, life and death. Like, he gave us opportunity. He said, this is how things are going to go well, right? If you live life this way. And so a lot of times we think about the Ten Commandments, we think about the way that God laid things out, and we think, okay, well, if we do those things, then we're, we're headed to hell, so we have to have forgiveness of that. And we ask Jesus for forgiveness of that, and then we try to avoid as many of those things as possible. And, and that's not wrong, but it's kind of, uh, you know a dissolved truth of what's going on there. Like, yes, those are God's laws, and if we break them, we've sinned, and we have to, you know, deal with that. But also, like, that's just the way that life's going to work well, right? Like, God, just there's wisdom in that. He's just saying, like, hey, I want things to go well for you, and you want things to go well for you. There's a way that you think is going to be right, and that's going to lead to your death and destruction. So do these things, and things will actually go well for you. And so it, there actually is just a, a part of that that is just wisdom and really helpful. Um, but we as people don't do that, and we go the other way. In fact, the Bible says that there's none of us that are good, none of us that have kept all those commands, none of us want God's wisdom. We all go our own way. And so there becomes this need, right? There becomes this, this divide between man that God has created and the one that we were created for. And so that's the theme that runs throughout all the books of Scripture, is God pursuing? God being present in and controlling the, the moments of history as the people you know go our own way, and He is working in the midst of that. So, what we're going to see in today's story is very much kind of those two things running parallel. So, within God's you know design of life, He has said some things like, "Hey, this th- don't do this, or and, and do this, and things will go well." He's also said some truths in Proverbs. We all know some of the truths about uh, pride goes before the what. Fall, right. And um, and a haughty spirit before the fall or before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. So we've heard verses like that. And there's several others actually throughout the scripture. And so he said some things that are true and and will play out very often in life. Uh, but what we'll see is that's not like a blanket statement that that's just always going to happen. So it's God's command, like his big picture thing. We know that he is committed to these things and he's going to accomplish this work in the grand scheme of history. And and so, like that, that's we know he's reconciled in the world to himself. We we believe Revelation ends with uh, Jesus on the throne, with people from all nations around him. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that that Christ is the Lord. Uh, Some, those who have claimed Christ as their Savior and trusted Him, uh, will be. In, in heaven, in a new heaven, a new earth, with him forever, those who didn 't will be separated from him forever, like we know that ultimate justice is going to be given. but when we zoom into the moment that we 're in right now, it begins hard, it, it, it begins to get hard to know, okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, how are these things playing out and so there 's this truth of like okay, we know God has said he 's going to do this i don 't like i don 't see how what he 's doing right now in front of me is going to lead to that i don 't like i 'm wondering if he didn 't like Fall asleep at the wheel, right? Anybody had that, that moment in your life as you're thinking personally, like I don't understand God how you could let this happen. If you say you love me, if you say you're good, anyone? You had those moments, and maybe it's less about you personally and more about the state of the world at large or our country, where you're where you're watching the news, you're watching things unfold, and you begin to wonder, okay. Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. Like this doesn't. I don't know if you've noticed, I don't know if you caught the news lately, Jesus, but it, it seems as though things have gone off the rails, right? Like we have these moments and we don't know exactly what, what to do with that tension. And so uh, books like this actually give us some insight into that. And what we're going to see in today's story is that in a moment where, when things are looking really bad for God's people, uh, and some, some real evil um, prideful people are in positions of power. We're going to see that not only is God in control of the grand narrative, right, but that he's also at work in the details in the individual narrative. So we're going to run through this story. It's a long passage, so we're going to run through it quickly. But, um, and we're going to see in that, really, uh, we're going to look at pride. We're going to look at not only is God in control um, in the grand scheme of things, and we can take heart in that even when we don't understand it, but we're also going to look at, okay, he has laid before us this warning against pride. It's easy to look at somebody like Haman and this joker is clearly prideful and think, well, yeah, I mean, obviously that guy was headed toward destruction. But I, what I think is that we're often quick to write off Haman as this evil villain and to give ourselves a pass when I think what would actually be most beneficial to us from the scriptural standpoint is to see ourselves in the life of Haman, see our own tendencies align with him more than we probably care to admit. And, uh, but the, there's good news at the end. So let's run through this. Um, and just kind of make some notes as far as what's going on in the story. As I've said before, I really wish there was like a previously on Esther clip that I could show. I don't have that, uh, and I can't walk through the whole story up to this point. But I would encourage you to go back and read. But what we have in short is the the Persian Empire and King Xerxes that you may know from history is in power, and some of God's people are in um, the capital city. They're all you know, amongst his kingdom, but he allowed many of them to, actually allowed all of them to go back home. Some go back home, some don't, and they don't really belong there, but they are there, and they get caught up into uh, the, the chaos that is this kingdom that Xerxes runs, and to, their two main characters are Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is Esther's adopted father, right? So he was her cousin, her parents both died, he adopted her, and um, they, they don't belong in the city of Susa, but they end up there, and um, on their own choice, and they get caught up in this whole deal where um, she actually becomes queen through this terrible series of events that's uh, a lot like The Bachelor, only on a grand um, and more disgusting scale. And she becomes queen, though, and then this antagonist named Haman rises to power within Xerxes' kingdom. He's the number two man, and he has a personal vendetta against uh, Mordecai because, and and then therefore Mordecai's people, which is God's people, the Jews. And he has been granted the power to execute all of them. And so the date has been set. The notice has been given that on this date, in a few months, all Jews are to be executed. Their goods are to be plundered and... um, they're done, like men, women, and children alike. And so that is the tension which we found ourselves in. And Esther and Mordecai had kind of been dormant, not following uh, the, the ways of the Lord up to this point. And, and yet this crisis, it seems to begin to shift them. And they seem to begin to living lives of purpose and repentance now. And God is using them in mighty ways. And so Esther has has gone before the king, which is at the risk of her own life, and is beginning the process of pleading with the king for this to be overturned, but she's doing it in a wise way. So you have the king Xerxes, who's this passive, really powerful, but kind of passive, you know, coward of a king. Uh, he always is getting counsel from other guys. And you have Haman, who's this guy who's after the throne. He's very ambitious, and he's the one who's been given this power. The king doesn't know that his wife is a Jew because she's kept it quiet. There's this is whole thickened plot, and that's where we pick it up in um, verse 9 of chapter 5. So, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. What's he joyful and glad of heart about? Well, he just got to have a meal with the king and his queen. So if you read the the part before, Esther uh, says, hey, why don't you and Haman come to this big meal that I'm going to throw for you and it's going to be really good. So Haman is like, he's loving this moment because this is like, he's in not just the inner circle, like he's in the inner, like, Nobody gets to be with the king and his wife at a private dinner. And this guy is over the moon about it. This is, this is very much his ambition and his dream is there. We'll see that in a minute. So he leaves there. He's really excited about life. And then he sees Haman. And Haman, this, or he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai has refused to bow to Haman. And that's what's caused this whole rift that end up getting this order for the Jews to be um, executed. And it's because Mordecai won't bow to this guy. And so life is really good for Haman. He's really loving the fact that he just had dinner with the king and the, and the queen, and everything's going and then he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai, once again, doesn't, doesn't, you know, ri- doesn't show him any respect. He neither rose nor trembled before him, so he's not acknowledging the power that Haman has, and, and he's insulting him, and, and, and he's insulting his pride. And so he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. So he comes out of this incredible meeting. He's on this cloud nine, and then he sees this guy, and it's all taken. Right? Do you have those moments where it's something, like, do you have those things where you're, uh, like, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life. This one thing can just ruin your day. What is that for you? If somebody says something about fill in the blank, your ability, your, uh, your fam- like, whatever it is, like, we have these little things that can just steal our joy, and for for Haman, this is it. So, nevertheless, he doesn't pick the fight in the moment. Um, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the, the splendor of his riches. So he he's calls his friends. He goes, "Guys, I am I am rich. I'm the number two guy in the kingdom. I have lots of sons, which is a sign of like prosperity. Like things are going well. He has uh, heirs, lots of heirs, lots of God. You know, like that's a in this culture is a big deal." And all the promotions which the king has honored him. So he's made his way up the chain. Like he's done the things. He's checked off the boxes and he's kind of venting to them. And he says, The king, or, the king had honored him with all these promotions and now he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, And even the queen Esther, let no one else come to, to the feast with the king that she prepared except me. And he said, And tomorrow I'm invited back to another feast with, with her and the king. And yet all of this, verse 13, is worth nothing to me. Isn't that dramatic? All of this is worth nothing to me, he says, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. He said, this just burns me up. I've got all the things I want, all the things I've ever dreamed about, and none of it matters because that one dude is still just bugging me. Keep in mind, he has the authority. It's been passed that all Jews are going to be done away with in a few uh, weeks or months. And yet, he can't stand the fact that Mordecai is still there not showing him respect. So the first question is, do you tend to be a person of gratitude or of entitlement? When things are happening in your life and they're going well, do you tend to soak that in and let that really uh, fuel joy for you and gratitude where you're able to just kind of breathe deeply and go, man, this is good. Or are you already on to the next thing? Already on to the next thing. I read this book um, by this, this dude that's a freak athlete, Navy SEAL, did all these, these crazy ultra marathon things, and uh, and he talks about all these incredible feats. And every time he would reach another one, uh, instead of being able to celebrate, he's already like feeling this. Okay, I've got to find the next thing. I got to find the next thing. Which, how do you, what is that like for you? Do, you? do you tend toward gratitude? Are you grateful for what you do have and what God has done? Or do you immediately start thinking about the next thing that you have to have and you're just consumed by it? Here's the deal. Again, I said earlier that, that God puts forth this principle that pride uh, comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. And, and we've heard that. And, and there's actually a verse in uh, Psalm um, 31, that, that talks about um, that the Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And so there's very much this sense, sense all throughout the scripture that, that God will like He's going to oppose the proud, give grace to the humble. But sometimes we wonder, like, okay, when are you doing that? Because this joker that is very proud seems to be getting all of the stuff, right? If you Maybe you've had those moments where, where you're seeing somebody who is very proud and doesn't care about other people, and they seem to be getting all this stuff. And, and we can wonder, like, I, I don't know what we want. Sometimes we want, like, you know, God to do the, the Sodom and Gomorrah thing to those people, right? Like, they're clearly out of line, so why doesn't God just deal with that? Like, just you know, burn them up. And we see the disciples try that with Jesus one time. They're like, hey, can we just do that? And Jesus like, no, 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 we got it. we got a different plan. And what you see is that there's actually some subtlety or a lot of subtlety and a lot of mystery even to the way that God works in these moments of, of life being really confusing, life being really hard and unsure of the direction. And so part of the, and we can't major necessarily on this this morning, but one of the things that we want to um, put before ourselves this morning is that um, we, we can't go through life questioning the sovereignty of God and wondering, why, why aren't you doing this? And uh, clearly, God, if you were doing this, if you, or who you say you are, then you would be... Like, we can't start questioning the sovereignty of God just because things aren't going the way that we think they should go. Instead, we need to assume the sovereignty of God. We need to uh, assume in faith that, okay, God has promised to do these things. He has promised that justice will be served, and he has a plan. And it doesn't always make sense to us right in front of us, but when uh, we zoom out, and maybe after we've got, gotten past of it, you know, how many you, we've all had things like that in our life where we did not understand what God was doing in the moment, why that pain was there, but we see later, oh yeah, God used that in this way for his glory. And very much, this story could be put before, like, why, why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow Haman, who hated the Jews, to get the kind of power that he had to where he could have this decree they all be killed like there's lots of questions that can be asked but we have to instead of questioning the providence of God we need to assume it and what we'll see is that sometimes God works through miracles right through very clear actions where he puts a stop to this and he starts this and he saves that person and that person is that evil plan is stored in and there's very visible miracles and then other times God works in what we would call mysterious ways that are more providential and less you know prominent and very clear like God you know Oh, God did that. And sometimes it's just like, oh, sometimes we'll call it coincidence, right? Oh, what a coincidence. When we're really, if we believe what the Scriptures put before us, we would call it providence, meaning God is at work in that. So a lot of times we can't, it's, it's a lot like the wind. One pastor said, like, you can't see the wind, right? Like, you, you can't. Lay eyes and go, oh, the wind's blowing. But you can look out the window and see its effects, right? You see the, the trees blowing, the, the the limbs bowing down. You see, uh, you know, leaves being stirred up. If it's fall, you can feel your, you know, your hair. Like, so you can feel and see the effects of it, but you don't always um, see the wind itself or ever, right? It's, it's an invisible. So a lot of them, God is working throughout history in that way where, okay, we, we don't know. He's not making it really clear what he's doing, but we can trust that he is doing what he said he would do. And so what we're going to see is that God is going to begin to work, in, and, and there's comedy even in this story, but um, we're going to see that he's beginning to work in, in ways that aren't real clear but are very effective to accomplish his purposes and to prove true the verses we read earlier about pride. So there's Haman uh, in, this, in this fit of just he can't believe that Mordecai is still there. So, um, all this is worth nothing to me, he says. In verse 14, his wife... Um, and all of his friends with him said, Well, let why don't you build an execution machine? So this is like a big gallows hanging like before the cross, but very much a cru like a execution type of thing uh, that can be made. It's like fifty cubits, so it's it's really tall, especially for this day. Why don't you have some dudes make that? You've got you can order them around. Why don't you go out right now and say, hey guys, you're working midnights and you're gonna build this giant thing. Uh, and in the morning I'm gonna have Mordecai hanged upon it. So she says, Hey, honey, things are going well. You've had this dinner with the king and queen. You're going back tomorrow night, but he's stealing your joy. Why don't you just deal with that thing that's stealing your joy? Why not you kill Mordecai? And then after you kill him, you go on to your feast and enjoy your life. That's literally what she puts before him. Uh, then, joy, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he made the gallows. So on, the night, or on that night, the king could not sleep. So that's what's happening. Uh, Haman says, I'm just going to deal with this problem, right? He's prideful. He's, this guy, I don't like this guy, so I'm, I'm going to get rid of it. God is working in behind-the-scenes type of ways, and here's what we're going to see. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds to the Chronicles, and they were read before him. So he, he can't sleep, which we've all had sleepless nights. This guy's got a lot to think about, some good, some bad, but he's the king of a you know huge... Uh, empire. He can't sleep. So he says, hey, will not you bring me the history book, the book of memorable deeds? I don't know if he just really, if that's all written in a way that kind of puffs him up, or if he thought it would be boring enough that it would put him to sleep. Not sure which, but he has a guy read this to him so he can sleep. Verse 2, And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who sought to lay hands on the king, uh, on King Ahasuerus, um, which is Xerxes, and the king said, well, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? So what he's talking about is an incident that happened earlier in the, in the book that we didn't preach in detail on, but where uh, Mordecai was working at the king's gate, and he hears this plot to overthrow, to execute the king, right? To, to assassinate King Xerxes. He hears two of the king's guys going, making this plan, and Mordecai goes and, and tells it, and he saves the king's life. So, but they, nothing ever happened. Like, Mordecai just went back to work the next day and never got honored for that. And so this has been like four or five years, and now this story is being read. And remember, Mordecai has plans to kill, or Haman has plans to kill Mordecai in the morning, and yet the king is having this dream, right? Coincidentally, right? Right? No. Providentially, right? God's at work in that. Like, he's having this dream because God is at work in this. And so, or he's having this, uh, actually, the story read, he can't sleep. So providentially, he can't sleep. He's having the story read. And he goes, hey, what, what did we ever do for Mordecai for that? And the king's like, uh, nothing, actually, verse 3. And the king was like, well, who's here? Who's in the court? Now, Haman, so this, this is good drama. Haman had just walked in, entered the outer court in the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged upon the gallows that he prepared for him. So here comes Haman, and he's literally ready to make his pitch, saying, hey, just so you know, I have some gallows made, and I'm going to kill that Mordecai dude. And normally, we have every evidence to believe that the, the king goes, Yeah, that's fine. Whatever. I don't, I, he doesn't want to be bothered with these things. He gives Haman full authority. And so, that, Haman is approaching with that in mind. And listen to what happens here. This is like, I really think God's enjoying this moment. Like, I, one, one pastor said, like, God's like calling the angels over, like, hey, guys, you don't, want, you don't want to watch this one. Like, this is going to be really good, right? So, the king goes, Hey, let him come in. So, Haman come in. And the king said to him, well, What should be done? So, the king asked him this Hey, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Right, King's making plans to honor Mordecai because he hasn't. Haman walks in. King says, "Hey, what what should I do? This is this guy I really want to honor. What what should I do?" Well, Mordecai, being the arrogant punk that he is, says to himself, "Well, what should be done to the man that the king delights to honor, or whom would the king delight to honor more than me?" So he goes, "Ha ah, ha! Finally, my days arrive. Right, I'm going to get the recognition I deserve." Well, I. I appreciate you asking, king. I, I do have a few ideas. So he begins to give all these ideas, which is really funny. Haman said to the king, verse 7, he says, Well, for the man who king delights to honor, let, why, why don't you give him your royal robes, the ones that you've worn, and, and the horse that you've ridden? Why don't you let him ride that? And, and on whose head a royal crown is set? And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress this man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. So he's like, hmm, king, that's a good question. I think a parade would be nice. Why don't you give him a parade? Give him your robe, give him your horse, give him your crown, that'd be good. So he's thinking, ah, I'm getting to plan my own party, right? So the king goes, love it, great idea, verse 10. Hurry, take the robes, take the horse, everything you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Who sets at the king's gate. That is funny, y'all. Like, you need to get that is awesome. The Lord is like, that's clever, right? So there's this refer Like, you got to imagine what the, like, this guy couldn't sleep the night before just because Mordecai was still existing. And he's got plans to, to kill him, extinguish him, and now he walks in and he has to do what the king says. And the king says, hey, you go and, and do all that for Mordecai. Lead him around the city and sing his praises and exalt him. This is fantastic. All of this is because Mordecai won't do that to Haman, right? Mordecai won't honor and, and tell Haman how great he is. And now Haman has to walk Mordecai around on this horse and tell everybody how great Mordecai is. So Haman took the robes. Like you can you imagine his posture, right? He took the robes and he took the horse and he dressed Mordecai and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man that the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Like, he's publicly whining about this, right? Like, He's making a public display like he like he's a little baby, basically. And he's, he's, like he's mourning out loud. He's got his head covered. Like everybody knows, like, oh, Haman is, is upset. He's mad, and he's mad about this. So he tells his wife and all of his friends everything that happened to him. And his wife is like, I hate to tell you this, man, but things aren't going well. And she goes, if Mordecai, this guy that you've got this agenda against, before whom you've begun to fall if he's of the jewish people i'm starting to think there's something to this jewish people and their god may be involved somehow and he says you're not going to overcome him in fact i think you're a dead man this is from his this really what you want to hear from your wife on a, after a hard day right <laughs> you're like looking for sympathy i can't believe the king did that to me and she's like i don't know like i think it's going to Get worse before it gets better. And like, gee, thanks, babe. So, God is at work providentially in the midst of this. And we're seeing that not only is he going to make a way to preserve his people, his people, and, and Mordecai said this to Esther earlier. He says, listen, one way or another, God's going to do his thing. He doesn't actually say the word God, which is a curious part of this book. Right? God's not mentioned. Angels don't show up. Prophets are not there. And yet, God's hand, his work, his effects, right? The wind blowing, like, it's all over. And this is one of those moments. Where, so not only is God going to accomplish his purposes, we're preserving his people. Because here's what's at stake. If all the Jews get killed, then, then God's plan to bring salvation and redemption to the world through his people, the Jews, if, if they all get wiped out, then God's plan has failed. Right, So there's a lot at stake in this moment. So not only is God going to work that out on the grand scheme and, and provide a way, but he's, he's beginning to bring about some very poetic justice in the moment to the individuals as well. So here's, what I wanna, here's, here's how I want to kind of end this and, and just with some um, opportunities for us to look at Kind of Haman and Mordecai as some case studies. Now, we've kind of poked fun at, at Mordecai and really said that he's not by any means this model citizen that we want to model our lives after. In fact, he's been cowardly and he's been, um, you know, one that we've like, okay, man, you should have manned up several times. But the one thing we do see from Mordecai is humility. And so we kind of got Haman and Mordecai as some case studies for humility and pride. So think about think about Mordecai. He hears this plot, kill, the king's going to be killed. He takes it, saves the king's life. Now in this day, it is very, like, it's, it's, like there's another story from the same um, time in history where another guy saved uh, the king's brother. So King Xerxes' uh, brother was saved, a similar plot kind of thing. And the guy who helped save the king's brother got to become a governor. Right, and so it's very much understood. Like if you do something like that, you're going to get honored and rewarded for it. So Mordecai saves the king himself, and yet there's no no honor given him. And what does he do? Does he throw a fit? No way! Like how how dare he? Does he? No, it, it's very quiet. He just goes back to work. Doesn't make a big deal. Even after, and so he works for four or five years now. Nobody's ever known about, no, no you know, news story about him being the unsung hero. No, um, you know, headlines have been written about him. He just goes back to work. And he does it for four or five years. And then all of a sudden he has this really weird day where the guy that clearly hates him and is told the, the, has got the power to kill all the Jews shows up and goes, Hey, Mordecai, come here, man. And Mordecai's probably like, oh, great, this is like, Probably my end, right? And he goes. Actually, man, go ahead and get on the horse. Here's a here's a, here's a here's a robe. That's from the king's closet. Here's a crown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're actually gonna do a parade for you. You're like he has this weird day. You imagine Mordecai's like, all right, like it's clearly. Like, he gets paraded around this the, the city, and everybody's everybody's there. And then what does he do? What does he do? Verse twelve. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He just goes back to work, right? Can you imagine that? You're like, your friends are like, hey, how was the parade? And you're just like, I don't know, and like, weird. But here I am, like, it's a weird moment. But there's humility in this guy where he is just, he's not entitled. He's not, he's grateful for what he has, and he, and, he's, and then we have Haman on the other side of this, who is textbook prideful dude at every turn, right? And so I want to close by just asking a few questions of ourselves. Because again, I think it's easy to say, "Oh yeah, pride," and we see it really clearly in that guy, right? But then we go, "Well, I mean, you know," and it's more a little more easy for us to justify. So, to help us know whether we are, you know, prideful people, I could give you the short answer, but we'll, we'll uh, you'll resist it, as as do I. So let's instead look at some of these these questions. So, question one, I, I borrowed these from another pastor uh, um, that. From this sermon, or from the same passage, and I thought they were good. So, uh, question one Do you crave attention, honor, recognition, and reward, and you get angry when you're overlooked? Do you crave attention, recognition, and honor in such a way that it kind of consumes you, right? And then you get overlooked in it and you lose it, right? Like you get angry. Secondly, do you get jealous or critical of people who succeed? Think about it. Your work, your neighborhood, your like what? And you start seeing people that start getting promotions or getting um, you know, just blessed in a way that you feel like you deserve. Get jealous. All of a sudden you're real critical of that person, right? Point out all their flaws. Thirdly, do you always have to win? Like, are you that person that just, like, can't let it go? You always have to win. And not just in games. That can be an issue, too. But, like, in life. Like, where you're just like, no, no, no. I and this is what drives some people to, to really do some unhealthy things. Where They're just consumed with winning. They're just consumed with being the best and everybody knowing that they are the best. And they, they leave their family and their, their, their integrity just in the dust. St. Augustine said that pride is, is a mother. Pregnant. Pride is the sin, the mother of all sins, that is pregnant with all other sins. What he's saying there? It's, it's the root, like when you begin to live in a way that is prideful, it may not start this way, but it will lead you to do things that you never thought you would do. You'll start to believe that you're entitled to this and that, and you'll start treating people. Le- and, and so man, if you always have to, like you need to lean into that. You need to know, like, okay, if that consumes me in such a way that I start to forsake other parts of my life, we need to be concerned about that. Uh, on the other side of that, fourth question, do you lack ambition for the fear of failing? So pride is most, you know, identified in the guy who, or the woman that thinks a lot of themselves, right? And, is, you know, kind of runs over everybody else. But uh, the other side of that, pride is actually exists in a way that you're fearful to take a risk and put yourself out there because if you fail, it will look bad on your reputation, right? So do you lack courage? Do you lack ambition for the fear of failing? That also is pride. Are you prone to to lie about your failures? Do you own up to things quickly or are you, you prone to kind of explain it and justify it? which goes along with the next one are, are, is, it, is it you have a hard time fully acknowledging when you're wrong you get, you know people like that right like they've been caught they've been but they they have an explanation they have this story right and by the time they're done talking you're confused you're not sure if they like they just kind of running all around like i that's Certainly a proclivity of mine, like I could talk myself, you know, and justify and make myself feel better instead of just owning it. Do you find yourself just in a lot of conflicts? Right? Where you're just like, I I don't know what it is, but people just always want to fight with me. Well, one common denominator there, here's a mirror, right? Like, talk to them. You find yourself just in a lot of conflicts, and then it goes along with that. Like, do you just genuinely and honestly feel superior to most people? Like, you probably don't talk about that, but like in your heart of hearts, like, do you just kind of look down upon people and just feel like you're honestly superior to them? Here's the deal: uh, probably, if you're honest with yourself, there, there's some seeds of that in, in all of us, right? So what do we do with it? How do we avoid that? Here's like, I forgot who said this, but I think it was maybe C.J. Mahaney or I don't know. Somebody said that that pride is more of a direction than it is a destination. Does that make sense? Or I'm sorry, that was wrong. Humility. Backwards. Humility is more of a direction than it is a destination. What he means by that is like you never really arrive where you're just done with pride. Right, you're like, well, I'm really humble now. Glad I got that over with. Like, no, because that's pride, right? Like, the fact if you're saying that is, you know, and so it's more of this direction and posture than it is this destination to which we arrive. So, how do we keep ourselves on that, uh, you know, that path, that that, that posture, that direction, uh, and headed toward a place of humility? And and here's 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 how I want to close with just some words from the New Testament. And, and there's some real intentionality in this. From Colossians 3 and uh, 1 Peter 5, there's this uh, there's intentionality to it. And the way he says it, and both are, are kind of putting on or clothing yourselves. So it says, put on then, in Colossians, as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience. First Peter 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with what? Humility toward one another. For, he quotes the Old Testament, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So every morning you get up and you, you, know, you think about what you're going to wear, you put on clothes, and you clothe yourself, right? And like your, that's driven to some degree, varying degrees, but to some degree by how you want people to see, like how people are going to view you. New Testament begins to say like, hey, be intentional about putting on humility. Be intentional about being a people that reflect the image of God. And here's where it begins to shift. You think about Haman. What did he want more than anything else? He wanted to be like the king, didn't he? He wanted to be the king. The king says, Hey, what would be a really good way to honor somebody? He's like, I'd love, like, if you're asking me, I'd love to have your robe and your crown and your horse. Like, he wants to be in that position. He wants to be like the king. But here's the problem he's got the wrong king, doesn't he? He's the wrong king. He's chasing the wrong things. He's imaging himself after the wrong being. And that's why the gospel so paradoxical because Jesus says, hey, actually, if you're going to come to me, it's not going to be about getting all that material stuff and all that praise and recognition. It'll be about laying your life down. And here's how, here's here's what Philippians 2 says. This is how we're going to close. It says to God's people, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's a good principle, but it's going to go deeper and be gospel fueled as we keep reading this. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this, and here's how. All right, so you're like, okay, how do I cultivate humility? How do I move away from pride? Uh, Rick Warren uh, said in the Purpose Driven Life that humility is not thinking um, less of yourself. Right, so you're just like, oh, well, I got, I got to tell myself that I'm not that good, and other people like, no, you're still thinking about yourself, right? And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Martin Luther said like, sin is is. Uh, the self bending back in on itself. So what Rick Warren says is humility is not about thinking less of yourself, but actually about thinking of yourself less. That makes sense? So it's not about thinking less of yourself, but it's about thinking of yourself less. And that's very much what he's saying here. Is you need to have your eyes toward others. You need to be looking to others' interests and not your own. Have this mind among you, which is... And here's the, here's the good news, because none of us can get there on our own. But he says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men. Here's the deal. God accomplished his work in the book of Esther by preserving his people, preserving his plan so that we could get to Jesus, so Jesus could be born, so he could be our Savior, so that we could have life. So it's too late for Haman. That joker has been humbled. He is met the same fate that all of us are going to meet, death. And in that moment, he saw where glory really belonged. And he hit his knees and it was too late for him. But the good news is, because God accomplished his purposes back in Esther, it's not too late for you and I. It's not too late for you and I. We don't have to let our lives end in destruction. We don't have to keep pursuing our own selfish gain and it be all taken from us. Like We can have hope. And it's because Jesus was the opposite of Haman. Instead of uh, you know, longing for and claiming the throne for himself, Jesus had the throne. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to step down and enter in to the mess of humanity so that I can be their Savior. And it says this at the end of Philippians. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is our Savior. This is our King. We should want to become like our King. Haman wanted to become like his King. It's the wrong King. Our King is King Jesus. And we should want to become like Him. And here's what He did. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. There's that that proverb earlier, right? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's going to Come after the proud, right, and, and put them in their place. But those who are lowly and humble, he's going to exalt. And we see this ultimately played out in Jesus Christ to the, to the ultimate place. Jesus humbled himself to death on the cross, and then God exalted him to his right hand bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of the Father. It was Jonathan Edwards that said that once the glory issue is taken care of in our life, that 99% of the other things will fall into place. What he means by that is at the heart of our need for a Savior was our sin, and the heart of our sin was a, a self-seeking glory. You read back Genesis 3. like That's the pitch that Satan had. Hey, you could, you, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. Go get that for yourself. Instead of giving glory to God and, and being happy in that place, we sought to be God. And that's what started this whole mess. And What Edwards is saying is when we get that figured out, when we realize, oh yeah, we're not the ones who deserve the glory. It's him. And when we call people to salvation, right, we say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. Right? If he's the Lord, that means that you are not. And there's very much a moment of dethroning ourselves from from our own little throne of our life and saying, Jesus, I don't belong here. I can't. Like, I've made a mess of this thing. I'm going to step off the throne. I'm inviting you to take the throne of my life. I'm going to make you my Lord. And what John and they were just saying is once we do that, the other things in our life fall into place. Humility becomes a posture and a direction that we're on because we're bringing glory. We start to ask questions not about me and what do I deserve and how entitled am I, but rather will this bring glory to God? Am I putting others above myself? And it can't just happen when we just knuckle up and decide to be more humble and less proud. It happens when we look at Jesus. It happens when we fix our eyes on the the true king. And his spirit empowers us to make us like him. And there's beauty in that. We become his people. And he uses us to accomplish his purposes, even in this jacked-up time that we're living in. As we follow our King, he's going to use us in stories like this. We're providence. We don't know what he's doing. We don't know how he's using our life, but it's glorious. And we could take heart in it. We know how it ends. And we can trust that he's using us in the moment as we fix our eyes on him, off ourselves ourself and onto him. Let's pray. God, I pray that the truth of uh, your word would be... Um, clear to us this morning, to each one of us, no matter where we are, and that you would um, give us a very clear way to respond, which is declaring your glory. As we worship with one final song, Lord, may our hearts do just that. May we declare your worth and your glory, and may we trust in you. For those who have never made a a choice to to fall at the grace of Jesus, to humble themselves and say, I need a Savior. Lord, I pray that you would give them the, the faith to do that this morning. Thank you for the promise that it's not about us and whether we could figure life out, but instead it's about you figured it out for us. You've made a way and we get to come to you. Breathe life onto us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.